There we go. You can hear me now. So you didn't hear all those flub-ups then, is that? <laughs> no, but it is good. We, we became partners of South City. We believe in the vision of South City. We believe in, the, in uh, the vision of planting churches and having a multicultural ministry. And, and I've been a part of the Antioch School, which is the school that developed the first principles that that uh, you studied in your small groups. And so uh, it was just a natural fit for us to, to be uh, members here, to be partners here. And what I do, and just to introduce, I know when I came up here, some of you thought, well, I thought that was the heat and air guy. He, because I do work on air conditioners, and many of, of, of these air conditioners I've worked on, and many of your home air conditioners I've worked on. Um, but, uh, you know, due to the skyrocketing medical cost and uh, medicine bills, you know, sometimes you have to do side work. And that's my side work. That's not my priority. My priority is, is ministry. And in 1997, God called me to preach and I um, to my first church. And uh, I've had the privilege of pastoring three great churches in the BMA. Um, but we went on vacation in 1998. I was still bivocational. I was doing heating and air. That's what I, I started doing right out of high school. And uh, um, my wife said, you know, you're working too hard. You're, you're a bivocational pastor, and you're working 60, 70 hours a week doing heat and air. She said, we need a vacation. And so we went down to San Antonio, and we were in a restaurant. And being in the restaurant, I'd never been surrounded by so many Hispanics in all of my life. And I got to looking around and got to listen, and every now and then I'd hear a word that I understood, taco, burrito, you know, that was about the extent of it. But, uh, but you know, the Lord did something in my heart there in that restaurant, and, uh, and I said, Lord, if you'll help me learn this language, I will minister to these people. And so that began our journey toward learning the language. You know, I began making trips out of the country thinking God was going to send us to uh, some other country to be a missionary. But, but he kept reminding me or kept saying to me when I came back, why are we not doing over here what our missionaries are doing over there? At that time, we had 40-plus million Spanish speakers. Now we have 55-plus million Spanish speakers here in the United States. It is the largest Hispanic mission field in the world right now. And so, uh, you know, God really convicted me about doing Hispanic ministry in, here in the United States. And uh, so in 2006, our family moved here to Little Rock, and we began, we planted our first church, which is right down the road on Baseline. It's Iglesia Bautista del Faro, the Lighthouse Baptist Church. And, uh, and then several years after that, after... Um, uh, God had, had paired me with a, a Honduran named Jorge Vasquez, and he took over completely as the pastor, and we moved and, and started a church in Alexander, and now uh, Wilmer Juarez is the pastor there, and both those churches are doing wonderful, they're doing well, and I came to the conclusion that I could train and lead and encourage Hispanic pastors better than I could pastor Hispanic people, and so my role really began to take on a catalytic role. And so what I do is I travel around. Elvis is, is my assistant in the BMA, a Hispanic missions work for North America. We travel around. We do trainings. We have catalytic uh, meetings for catalyst teams trying to get different 
training center set up. We have one in Houston that's going well, here in Little Rock that's going well. We've got a new one in San Antonio that's about to kick off and where we're training church leaders and really trying to get them to buy into the vision of multiplication. We are losing our country so fast we have got to multiply churches. We can't just add churches. We've got to multiply churches. And so we're trying to, to train our pastors to have that mentality of that I've got to prepare people so that they can go out and serve. It's not all about me. It's not all about my service. It's about what I can pour into somebody else's life and then how God can use them in the lives of other people. And so that's what we are passionate about. It's not just about our ministry, but it's about the ministry of the guys that the Lord brings across our path. And I think now uh, I'm in about 65 ministering relationship with Hispanic pastors across the world. And, um, and it's just been a, an amazing journey uh, from what God has done, where he has brought us from, uh, a redneck from Hope, Arkansas, never dreamed that he would get to do some of the things that, that I've been able to do. But, you know, the most important thing that I get to do is preach God's Word. And uh, I want to ask you, if you will, turn with me to Acts chapter 11. I think it's very fitting. Uh, I did not choose this passage. As you know, we have been going through the book of Acts. And last week, I was really intimidated because Pastor Drew did a fantastic job with this narrative. I mean, he preached chapter 10. And chapter 10 really is a precursor to chapter 11. Chapter 10 kind of lays out... Uh, some things in the third person. Luke is writing about some things that happens. But here in chapter 11, we get to hear a firsthand account. It's kind of like the difference between reading a book about World War II and then being able to sit down with General MacArthur and asking him about the Pacific campaign. I mean, there's just daylight and dark. And which would you rather do, read a book or talk to somebody who had been there? Well, when we get to chapter 11, if we, if we back up, I know I just asked them to, to put verse 1 on there. I'm just going to read verse 48 of chapter 10 to give us some context. And let me say this. This passage of Scripture in the book of Acts is so fundamental for what God wanted to do with his church that we cannot overstate its importance. And I think that's why God spent so much time... Uh, all through chapter 10, and then having Peter come back and repeat what had happened in chapter 11, because there were some lessons that, that the church needed to learn. It was a primarily Jewish church, and they were having a hard time crossing those racial barriers and, and reaching out to the Gentiles. And it was so important in God's plan for his church, that the church be a Gentile church with mixed of both Jew and Gentile, that he really had to go to extraordinary means to try to get that to come to pass. If you remember, Peter got the keys to the kingdom. And we see him on the day of Pentecost, he's preaching, and 3,000 souls uh, were brought into the, the kingdom and were added to the church, the Bible says. And then we see him in Judea, and we see him in Samaria. But in chapter 10 and 11, finally we get to see him opening the keys of the kingdom up to the Gentiles. I mean, it's very intentional what Luke writes in the book of Acts. I mean, there's nothing here that's haphazard. God's word is inspired. And there's only 66 inspired books that exist in the world. And so it's very important that we understand that every passage that we read was God-breathed and it's there intentional and on purpose. And so here's this passage in Acts chapter 11 coming off of the heels of Acts chapter 10. And the very last thing in Acts chapter 10 that happens is Peter 
commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and then they asked him to remain for some days. So Peter has gone to Caesarea. He is there in the house of Cornelius, and, and God has come and manifest himself. And it was hard for Peter to believe that, that God would actually want him to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to preach the gospel to somebody who wasn't a Jew, somebody who was different than them. But God did it through a vision, three times to emphasize, this is what I want you to do. And then the Holy Spirit said, go without misgivings or go without doubting. You do what I tell you to do. And I'll tell you, there's a pattern in chapter 11 that we're going to look at that I believe is applicable not only to our personal lives, but our life as a church. And so when we look at this passage, we're in the context of God doing something extraordinary. He is expanding the reach of the gospel. And he's using Peter, the most prominent apostle at this time, to do that. And so when Peter comes back, now think about it for a moment. The Bible says he stayed many days with them at Caesarea. We don't know how many, many days are. And so he stays with them in probably a matter of weeks, maybe even months. He's had time to mull all this over. He's had time to figure out, okay, now I understand what God is doing. In chapter 10, it said he was perplexed. and He didn't really quite capture what God was trying to tell him with this vision that came down and showed all these animals and God telling him, get up, kill, and and eat. And, And Peter said, no way, nothing uncommon or unclean has ever entered into my mouth. Well, now that he's gone to Cornelius' house, now that he has preached the word, now that he has seen the Holy Spirit descend upon these believers as well, Peter's got it figured out. Now, it wouldn't be the last time he would face this battle because Paul would face up to him at Antioch because Peter would kind of backtrack. And then we know in Acts chapter 15, there was a great meeting of the church at Jerusalem trying to figure out exactly what is the relationship between Gentile and Jew, the law and grace. And so when we come to verse 1 of chapter 11, I want you to look first of all at the accusation. And what we're going to try to do is go through this passage. We'll begin with the accusation. Then we're going to follow it up with an explanation the interpretation, the application, and then I want to give you a pattern that we can apply to our life that I think is is very applicable and necessary if we're going to be transformed by the Word of God. So Peter comes back to Jerusalem, and the Bible says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. Now, the circumcision party was that part of the Jews, they had been saved, but they were still captured by their cultural identity. You know, the Bible says that once we come to Christ, that we are in Christ. We are not neither Jew nor Gentile, but we are one in Christ. And the Christian's identity, all of our identity, should not be based primarily on our ethnicity, but rather our relationship to Jesus Christ. But for these people of the circumcised party, they had a hard time with that. It was a a cultural construct, a social construct that they had put together so that the Jews and the Gentiles were so separated that the Jews couldn't even look at a Gentile without being offended. And so now Peter has preached to the Gentiles, and then the circumcised part of the church in Jerusalem, the part that was really legalistic, 
and wanted to hold to the law comes up to him and they begin criticizing him. Now, the verb criticize is in the imperfect tense and it means this happened more than one time. They were making a pattern of criticizing him. He didn't just walk through the doors of the church and then a couple of guys jump up and ask him and, and accuse him. This had been kind of going on behind the scenes. So it comes to a head. And he says, they say in verse 3, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, they didn't have a problem if he went and preached the gospel to them, but sitting down and eating with them, that was a different story, right? I mean, there's just something about eating with somebody that breaks down barriers and puts you on equal footing. Now, all of these, ver these verses, first three verses, we're not dealing with Levitical law. There was nothing that forbid the Jews to be around the Gentiles. There were certain foods that they were to abstain from. There were certain activities that they were to abstain from. But God, from the beginning, has wanted to reach the world with the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 when he tells Abraham that in Abraham and his seed, he's going to bless all the families of the earth. What is he talking about? He's got a global vision. It's not just for one ethnic group. It is for all ethnic groups. In fact, the Great Commission says, which means every ethnic group. We are to make disciples of every ethnic group. And so Peter has gone. God has opened the doors. He's pushed him into doing this. It was hard for him to break out of his cultural baggage, so to speak. You think, well, that, that's not so bad these days. I'll tell you, it is just as pertinent today as it was back then. We, we have a Spanish church in, in Jackson, Louisiana. And we were renting it from another denomination. And it was built in 1852. And the owner, owner of the building came up to me and he said, was explaining the building because they had a Bible that was on the lectern from the 1800s. He said, don't touch that Bible. You know, it may fall apart. And, and, and so I took pictures, but nothing else. But then he said, he said, you see that loft? He said, that was where the African-Americans sat. It was part of the culture. God didn't command us to separate based upon our color and our identity. It was a culture that defined what was expected. When Peter went in in chapter 10 and he said, you know it's unlawful for a Jew to be here. It's not The word that is translated unlawful in the ESV literally means it's against, it goes against custom. It wasn't against the law. It went against custom. And so it wasn't ordinary. And his friends would look down on him and they would think poorly of him. I remember when, when I announced that, that God had called me to Hispanic ministry, somebody said, why in the world would he leave a perfectly good white church to go minister to a bunch of wetbacks? And if we take that even further... We have to realize that there was a, an ethnic identity that was mixing with their religion. They thought because they were Jew, they were better than the Gentiles. They thought because that they had received the law that the Gentiles shouldn't be a part of that. And Peter was breaking all that up. and he was, I mean, God was breaking all that up and tearing it down using Peter to illustrate that. And so when they came into him and they said, look, you went into uncircumcised men and you ate with them, what, what they were saying was, you got out of your place. You know, good southern boys shouldn't do that. 
And so these lines were drawn by culture. The head of the Ku Klux Klan lives in Harrison, Arkansas, right outside of Harrison, Arkansas. And what is tragic, as abhorrent as that hate group is, what is tragic is that he claims to be a Baptist preacher. And on their website, they repeatedly talk about the white Christian faith. The white Christian faith. In fact, they've got a placard on their, on their website that says, Found a Roman document, 1936, that says Jesus was white. Now, let me ask you something. What was happening in the world in 1936? I mean, Hitler was rising into power. We were getting ready for the Holocaust. And you're going to believe a document like that? But it's even worse when he says white Christian faith. There's no such thing. It's the Christian faith. Our roots began with a Jewish carpenter. And if you look all through the book of Acts, it never reaches the United States of America. <laughs> it's all taking place in the Middle East. These people talk different than us. They look different than us. They eat different food than we do. But that's where the gospel originated. It didn't originate with us. So we cannot claim an ethnic identification with our Christian faith. We're not white Christians. We're not black Christians. We are Christians. Right? And so Peter, having received that accusation, I mean, I mean they come down on him hard. I love what the Bible says in verse 4. He says, but. He changes it. And we start to go from the third person to the first person. Peter began and he explained it to them in an orderly manner, in order. In other words, he said, let me tell you what happened, guys. And I believe he was probably adamant. He had got the message by this time. Now, he didn't always stick to the message, but he got the message. He understood it. And he says, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. And looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, you do not call common. And then he does it again. Now, number three is significant because it is, it is emphasizing the totality of this message. God wanted Peter to get it. The Bible says this happened three times and then all was drawn up again into heaven and behold, I like the way that, that particular Greek word in the Greek, that word means pay attention, look. I mean, Peter is animated when he's doing this. He's not just sitting there, you know, humdrumly talking about what had happened. This was a major cultural taboo. And God had used him to bust it wide open. And now he's getting crawled on the carpet for it. And he's given his defense. And he says, this is what God did. And he says, behold, at that very moment, three men showed up. They arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit 
The Holy Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. In other words, don't have any doubts. Your mind is set. You go. And then he says, just for witnesses, I'm going to take six people with me. And these six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house, send a Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all of your household. And Peter says, I began to speak. And the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. What an amazing statement. He says, guys, I preached and God showed up. Just like he did with us on the day of Pentecost, he did with them. And then he goes, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So we have this accusation. You went into uncircumcised people, people who were not Jews, and you ate with them, you fellowshiped with them. And they made that accusation. Then Peter comes back with his explanation. He says, guys, let me tell you what happened. And isn't it true that when you're convinced that God is in something, you are a little bit more bold than you would be otherwise? I mean, when you're convinced this is God's will, you're willing to fight tooth and nail for whatever it is that you believe in. And Peter was convinced that what God wanted was different than what the social construct said. He knew that it was time for a change in the culture. We can never let our culture divine, define our biblical convictions. Our biblical convictions should define our culture. That's what makes the church different, is that we live by a different book. We have a different code of ethics. We worship a different Lord. And so all these things had to change in order for the church to expand their horizons to include the Gentiles. And so now Peter's fixing to interpret what happened, just in case the explanation didn't, ha didn't, didn't do the trick. He says in verse 17, if then, and that word is translated in some translations, since, it's an assured fact, since God gave the same gift, the Holy Spirit, to them, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and Peter said, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter says, guys, this is what happened. But this is what God meant. God meant that he was moving to include the Gentiles. He was breaking down the racial barriers between us. And I'm not going to dare get in his way to do it. You know... I don't want to, maybe I was scared of this passage because it was so easy to get on a soapbox. But let's be honest. I mean, we live in a culture where if you're caught drinking a beer, you're condemned to hell. But you can be just as racist as you want to be. And nobody will say a word. You think that's what God wants? In order for South City to truly become a multiple, multicultural church and continue as a multicultural church, we have got to realize that our identity is in the Lord Jesus Christ and it is God's will that we be together. This is not a man's desire. This is God's desire 
God sent Peter to the house of Cornelius. The Holy Spirit told him to go. And don't you worry about what I'm doing. You go with conviction. And so we have this interpretation. He says, God did this, and I was not about to get in his way. And then we have the application. Peter applied the lesson immediately, and we already read that verse, the last verse of chapter 10, because when when Peter captured what has happened, he commanded them to be baptized. He said, look, if it's the same Holy Spirit that that came into our lives on the day that we believed, we better baptize them the way that Christ commanded us to do in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. But notice what happens with the circumcised group of the church. It wasn't the whole church. It was the circumcised group or the group that emphasized the law. The Bible says when they heard these things, they fell silent. Now, that doesn't mean that they temporarily closed their mouth. What it meant was is that they were stopped in their tracks by realizing what God was up to. They couldn't criticize Peter anymore. You're going to criticize a man for doing God's will and call yourself a Christian? And then he goes on, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. They got it. They applied the message. They said, you know what, God has granted repentance. Now there's nobody under heaven who can't be saved. They have the opportunity. You know, we used to sing in Sunday school, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. And then you grow up to be an adult, and you don't sing that anymore. But I want to tell you, it's God's desire that his people live harmoniously, worshiping together, If you read the book of Revelation, you find out that there's going to be a great worship service with every tongue and every tribe and every kind of people that have lived on planet Earth. And we're all going to be doing the same thing, worshiping the Lamb of God, worshiping the one who died in our place. Now, let me make this application as I close. There is a pattern in this that I think is still true. We talk about God's Word transforming our life. We talk about God changing us. Well, the only way that that, that the change can take place is if there's a confrontation. In other words, our culture has us doing this, and we think this is all right, and then all of a sudden God's Word explains to us that that's not what God wants. And so when when God's Word explains to us that that is not what He wants, we have a decision to make. Are we going to obey God, or are we going to continue doing what our culture or what we ourselves want to do? And so God's Word speaks into our life. God uses His Word to speak in our life. We interpret the Word of God. We understand the Word of God. And when we apply the Word of God, there's something that always happens. And in verse 18, the Bible says that they glorified God. It is impossible to glorify God without being obedient to His will. If these Jews had continued pushing, saying, uh-uh, Peter, you were wrong. You shouldn't have done that. This passage would not have said they glorified God. 
in our homes, in our churches, in our jobs, every time we are obedient to the Word of God, God is glorified. Every time a husband and a wife choose to stick it out, because that's what God's Word teaches, God is glorified. Every time somebody refuses to do something immoral, because that's what the Word of God teaches, God is glorified. And that's how we're transformed. Our theology confronts our culture. It confronts our actions, our ideas, our philosophies, and our mentalities. And God's word is always the best and always the way we should go. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment? I ask Brother Jerry if he will, if he'll come. And, and I want to stand over here to the, the left, my left, your right. Brother Jerry will be over here to my right, your left. And, you know, I think the Lord applies his word in different ways in each of our lives. Maybe if we're honest, we would say, you know what, this is something I am really struggling with. And you just need to come and pray and say, Lord, this is a problem for me. Crossing over these racial and cultural barriers, this, this is hard for me. Would you give me grace to do it? Maybe you'd like to come and, and pray for South City Church. We are trying to do what not a whole lot of churches in Little Rock are doing. And only God could bring that to pass. Maybe you'd like to come and pray for your staff as they seek God's will, guiding the church through that process. Maybe you're here and you've never met Jesus as your personal Savior. You'll never have your life transformed by God until you're saved by God's grace. And Brother Jerry or I would love to talk to you about what it means to be saved. Whatever God lays on your heart, I'm going to ask you here in just a minute. After we pray, you're going to stand and we're going to sing. What has God spoken to you this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. It's challenging. It hits us at where we are. But, Lord, I want to be on the side of the one who is obedient to your word, regardless of what the others say or think. And, Lord, I know the culture we live in, but I know you're more powerful than the social taboos and the social constructs that we make. And, Lord, you did something amazing on Calvary. Your blood shed for us opened up a pathway for both Jew and Gentile to come to the same Lord in the same way and receive the same forgiveness and the same eternal life. And it is only through that blood that we have any hope. Lord, I pray you'd have your way in this invitation time. Whatever it is that you'd have us to do, Lord, help us to respond. In Jesus' name.